This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to have this place to talk about faith and politics and sex even. Just big ideas in our culture (laughs) with all kinds of interesting, accomplished people who come in goodwill and good faith. It's an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Remember to subscribe. I, you know, you, you listen to podcasts, you know the drill, follow, subscribe, all that stuff. But in particular, write a review. If you get a chance, go on, especially Apple Podcasts, because for whatever it's worth, Apple is still the number one podcast, and it really does make a difference in our searchability, findability, if you actually leave us a review, but write a review, um, or leave a rating and write a review. It really does help. Everything helps. Get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation, like the one we're having today with Maddie Joe Kowser. Maddie Joe Kowser is an ex-evangelical. And we will discuss what, yes, I meant to say ex-evangelical, not <laughs> evangelical. So we'll discuss that. Maddie Jo's blog, God, Sex, and Rich People, traces her journey from the Bible Belt to New York City. By the way, say New York for me. New York. New York! Uh, yeah, you're from Missouri. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we trace that journey as Maddie Jo deconstructs Christian fundamentalism to embrace personal and sexual freedom. Her book of the same name, God, Sex, and Rich People will be out uh, this coming winter. Uh, very exciting. And her pilot, based on her series, premiered this year at the Omaha Film Festival. So, Maddie Joe, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. You know what's funny? Before we hit record, I you you use the word my people, our people. Like, mm-hmm. I think game knows game. Like, I, I shared beforehand that I started out as a New York theater rat. Uh, mm-hmm. So... Game knows game. Like I feel like I'm I'm at home with my mishpucha, my people. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love it. I always say like um, when people ask like you know when did the unraveling of your faith begin? I'm like, well, it really happened when I didn't end up marrying my college sweetheart, and we can mm. go into that later. But I mean, the beginning beginning was when I went this is part of like the rich people part of my blog was when I went to theater camp in upstate New York when I was like 14. And like, I raised the money to go like, you know, I was like car washing in the Walmart parking lot to raise the money to go to this camp for like one session. And then when I got there, I realized, Oh, this is a camp for like the 1% offspring. (laughs) Like all of them went directly from like boarding school or like the fanciest private schools in Manhattan directly to a summer full of summer camp that costs more than like four years of state school college. Um, Anyway, all that to be said, it was there at theater camp where I met my weirdo comrades. Like it was, I'd never been around other theater people before and many of them Jewish, many of them gay. And I was like, I have a a chapter in my book called everyone's going to hell, all caps. Um, (laughs) And it's about like me meeting Jewish people and gay people at theater camp when I was 14 and being like, oh no, are all of my theater weirdo friends going to hell? Like, that can't be the case. So, yeah. That's so funny because I was curious about that. I was curious, like, you know, growing up in an evangelical family, going to a church, you know, um, I I forget what denomination it was, a certain kind of Baptist church that your dad Mm -hmm. preaches at or or was a pastor at. Um, Mm -hmm. So a lot lot of folks going to church have the, you know, 
I, I came to the Lord when, you know, this moment of like when they accepted Jesus into their heart, you know, but you also have this trajectory of a lot of folks that I know who are still in the theater or pursuing their creative, you know, their creative life there. Sometimes there was also this moment when it was like, oh, shit, I have to do this theater thing. I have to do this, you know, acting thing. I have like, did, so did you have a coming to Jesus meet, uh, moment as well as a coming to Sondheim moment? I, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So uh, fantastic question. Um, and also to clarify, so I was raised um, like Hillsong United vibes of Christian, which a lot oh of people gosh. would not consider non-denominational as fundamental, fundamentalist, but it is, it just is dressed in like skinny jeans, tattoos, and like a hot lead pastor, you know, like it, <laughs> it's all, my saying is like same song, different choir robes. Like it's all the same when you really get down to it. Um, when we were younger, before I was in junior high and my dad was on staff at that church, we were more Southern Baptist by but technically we were general baptist which is different than southern baptist but not really like i mean i guess actually the only difference if we really want to get like specific is that southern baptist like sing dance get really crazy general baptist you're not allowed to dance the big no-no so like more footloose vibes than like screaming and having a great time at church um yeah so that's just wow. a subtle thing but i was mostly raised Hillsong United, non-denominational, cool Christian. So, um, and I talk about this in my book, like in terms of my like coming to Jesus moment of my faith, I would say like I became a Christian officially when I was eight years old because my grandmother died of cancer and I was suddenly very aware that like at any moment I could die and I didn't want to go to hell because you get raised, like you, you're just raised around it. Like you just hear it all the time. And then but I didn't become like a real Christian until probably like junior high when I was like, I'm going to live a counter-cultural life. I'm going to follow Christ in this very specific way that my church tells me to, but they're going to make me think that I'm free thinking because I read my Bible sometimes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and by sometimes, I mean actually all the time. I read my Bible a lot. Um, but my coming to Jesus moment with my acting, like I was... I truly feel created to do this was also at theater camp. Um, I don't think it was like a conscious choice. It was just, I was going through a hard time. I had a pretty bad eating disorder at that time in my life. Mm. And my parents, um, this is actually something I don't get asked a lot. So I'm excited to share this part of my story. Yeah. Um, so my parents sort of offered the whole theater camp option as a way to heal me like give me something to look forward to um and then so i had something other than food to fixate on whenever i was raising the money and then i ended up raising all of the money and then some my community really like rallied together to help me um and then i got to camp and i don't i didn't have words for it but i just felt at home I was like, this is it. And then I had that feeling again when I visited New York for the first time. So it was like, anytime I was around theater, anytime I was around other actors, I just felt a peace that I didn't feel in any other part of my life. And so that was what I allowed to lead me to becoming an actor professionally, um, was just this like sense of peace and like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. So much there. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, you had an eating disorder. If I may ask a little bit about that, mm -hmm. 
I, I was already a Christian. I grew up in a very observant Jewish family, became mm-hmm. a Christian when I was 29. And it was a very, very new world to me in a lot of ways. I, I became a Christian based on a lot of deep, deep theological convictions mm-hmm. that I had arrived at. But when I became a Christian, started going to church, it was, uh, I wonder if it's a Southern Baptist church. I should look into that, but it's called Grace Baptist. It's a John MacArthur mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. in his shadow kind of a thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I was grappling for the first time or starting to name this condition that I had lived with for all of my conscious life, uh, which was eventually diagnosed as bi- bipolar or manic depressive. Um, mm-hmm. When I first started bringing it up to guys, I was still a baby Christian. It was early 2000s. Ooh, uh, baby Christian. You did go to church. I did. <laughs> Yeah, we were going for like ten years. My kids were going to a Christian school. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I was I was in it. But um, the thing that I remember when I first brought it up with uh, I forget if he was an elder at the time. He eventually became an elder at that church. But he uh, his response to Hey man, I think I might be grappling with this thing. I, I'm, I can only I'm, I can only name as depression. And his response he was a master's college guy, uh, or he it was it's master's university now. And his his immediate response was, you don't have a depression issue, you have a sin issue. So I'm curious, I'm curious if when you started to grapple with an eating disorder, if being in a, it was general Baptist, is that, is that the denomination? Uh, when I had the, I was non-denominational at the time okay. that the eating disorder was happening, yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you faced that, that same kind of, like if you were looking for answers, looking to be healthy, like... I don't know. Were you faced with some of the same kind of pushback in that regard? Yeah. Well, I was a teenager, so they were probably like a little nicer to me. But um, at the end of the day, I I was trying – also a good question I've never been asked. Um, I – I was offered support from the church through like an eight step program. You might be familiar called celebrate recovery. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. So I went through celebrate recovery uh, for anorexia. And then again, for um, overeating and exercise bulimia, I basically just like lived with eating disorders for a long time. Um, And they wouldn't, come out right and be like and and like shame you shame me like but the language was still there that the reason I was anorexic was because I was worshiping this idea of perfect beauty of perfection and don't you know we're inherently flawed original sin you suck without Jesus you don't have to worry about being perfect because Jesus is perfect for you. So it was like always framed in this way that was like, oh, what a relief. But also I got myself here. It's my fault because I send my way into this idolization of physical perfection. Um, and I internalized that, you know, like this is my fault. I did this to myself. Um, and luckily I had two parents who were just so afraid of me dying, to be mm. honest, that they were like, whatever we're getting your professional help so they were like we want you to go to therapy my parents as boomers as fucking baptist boomers were like we're getting you into therapy which looking back is like incredible but my father was a big um 
advocate for therapy because he'd done a lot of like counseling with my mom over the years, like both them in counseling and them counseling others. So he like believed in that. Um, uh, Christians like to say counseling, not therapy. But in this case, I really was going to therapy because it was specific for eating disorders. Um, they wanted me to get on antidepressants because I was depressed. So that, that was another thing too. And I said no to the antidepressants unless... I could go to therapy as well, like it, like simultaneously. Um, and so they were like, yeah, sure. That sounds fantastic. So they brought up both options, but I said, I'll do them in tandem. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. That's a really roundabout way of answering your question. Like, yes, subtly I was shamed for it. And I definitely internalized it as like the reason I was suffering was because I was sinning. And all I needed to do was just stop sinning. But then, and then I also got like professional help, which was, which was helpful. But then what ended up happening is I stopped. I thought, okay, I'm, I'm not afraid of being fat anymore. I'm not afraid of what will happen if I start eating again. Um, but then I kept idolizing this body that I wanted, which just this whole thing plays into another bigger picture of just like how at war I was with my physical body for so long within the faith. Before we move on, I wanted to tell you about something else that's important. Money, (laughs) Uh, specifically your money. In all seriousness, I wanted to tell you about my advisor and my friend, George Mesa. George runs Mesa Wealth Management. And with George, it's not just about money. It's about helping us manage our present and plan for our future. And unlike a lot of other firms out there, George and I actually have a relationship. He knows me. He knows my family. And I know his wonderful family. I also know his firm and the incredible team he's put together from his chief investment officer to some of the other great people in his office, like Jessica, their head of operations that are always there to help me and with all aspects of our portfolio. You see, the thing is, I got a lot going on. I guess we all got a lot going on and I don't have the time to watch our investments all day, every day. And even if I did, I don't have the experience and expertise that George's team collectively has. So we get the entire Mesa Wealth Management team, all their expertise and all their integrity. And again, it's based on George knowing me personally, knowing my goals and even the kind of risk that's appropriate for me to take, which by the way, could change from one season to the next. And they're on top of all of that. So if you want George Mesa and Mesa Wealth Management to be on your team, just visit their website, mesawealth.com. That's M-E-Z-A wealth.com, www.mesawealth.com. And that will also be in our show notes, so you can check that. And now, back to our show. You know, I'm curious. I I didn't glean too much about your parents, but I got a sense that on the one hand, they're, you know, evangelicals. They're Mm -hmm. after it Christians, you know, Mm -hmm. Bible thumping, born again. But on the other hand, I get hints that they're a little bit rebellious within evangelicalism. Is that fair to say? That is very true. And I do have a few blog posts, um, uh, a few that are, there's one that's dedicated just to my dad and it's called daddy's girl. And then there's one dedicated to my mom called how to be a good mom, you idiots. And then, um, (laughs) and then there's one dedicated to the both of them called the fourth commandment. Um, and it's honor thy father and thy mother. Right. And uh, yes, I would say in this way, I'm definitely an exception uh, to a lot of rules in regards to having like religious 
parents, Christian parents, specifically in the Midwest, in that my parents have always led us um, by compassion and empathy above all else. Like that is what Jesus represents to them. Um, And so that was always like at the forefront. Um, So when, when Trump came on the scene um, and a lot of, a lot of their peers were following this person that very, I I call my dad an intellectual Christian and my mom, a common sense Christian. Uh, My dad will always lead from a place of like research and theology, but he also does have like a deep faith. My mom is just like, well, this is stupid. Like, why would you, how can you call yourself a Christian and follow a guy like and support a guy like Donald Trump? Like, it's just so blatantly obvious to her. Um, So I think, that was a really big awakening for my parents. My dad had been through a couple of like um, heartbreaks with the church. Uh, he had gotten pushed out of churches in his past and uh, in a few ministries um, sort of very unjustifiably and then had more recently gone through that. The church that we were part of for 15 years pushed him out and he really tried to help that church. Like he was really trying everything. And they just kept pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. So he's really heartbroken by that. So I think those experience combined with their peers supporting Trump was just like, this is a really messed up situation. And we don't identify as whatever it is they're identifying as. Um, And I had already been writing about, I had already been writing my blog before the 2016 election um, and kind of calling out a lot of this stuff. And when my parents and people would ask me, like, what do your parents think of it? And I'd be like, well, my dad just tells me he's happy. I'm saying all the things that he thinks. And (laughs) so, uh, you know, and so I wouldn't say they agree with everything I'm saying, but um, they're definitely they don't think I'm wrong. And then also when I went through um, a sexual assault situation also in 2016, something I never thought I would talk to my family about ever for many reasons we can get into if you want to um and and then i i did actually tell my mom um and then when i told her she told me her story and then when i shared with the rest of my family they opened up and shared their stories and so what i realized is that i had a family um full of secrets that I didn't know. And my opening up about it actually allowed us some like honest dialogue about these, you know, structures in our culture that keep uplifting misogyny in very subtle and harmful ways. So um, I I guess, again, like I had empathy and compassion from my parents through this process. So a lot of what has been coming out uh, in recent years about huge institutions or, you know, these, these leaders, uh, these pillars, uh, in the church must hit particularly close to home for you. I have to um, share with you that, uh, before I even became a Christian, I started reading, uh, Ravi Zacharias, uh, listening Mm -hmm. to his tapes. I started going to his seminars. Long story short, I ended up, he ended up becoming a personal mentor of mine. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when the stuff came out about Ravi, I mean, I talk about having to deconstruct your faith and re-examine a lot of those convictions that led me to do something as drastic as accepting, you know, as becoming a Christian. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I know my experience, it's funny. Um, I started uh, speaking semi-publicly, like at Bible studies, you know, just mm-hmm. like being open about the questions that I was sharing. And then, you know, on various platforms, as humble as they may be, like I'm not Joe Rogan, like, like but yeah. I do have certain platforms. But what I, one of the first responses I got was someone saying, uh, quoting a fraction of a verse, uh, and I just pulled it up, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. And he was quoting the six, no seven. And I'm like, dude, mm-hmm. read the rest of the fucking thing. <laughs> you know, yeah. like these six things, yeah. no, these seven, because it was coming up in the context of politics as well. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, full well, you're a Trump supporter, right? So mm-hmm. we can like skip ahead to the second half of one verse, but mm-hmm. let's read the rest of the thing and reexamine like what we're really, what we're really valuing. Anyway, I bring this up to ask you like, uh, so I, I was reading one of your posts and uh, God first, other second, I'm um, third. And the, I love the links, by the way. I re- They're so helpful, like all these okay, links. Cool. I go yeah. to the link and it goes to Canacook. Freaking Canacook. Let's talk about Canacook. <laughs> Let's talk about freaking Canacook. Like, but that's the one. Okay. So tell folks, a lot of folks don't know what Canacook is. And Nancy French has done such great investigative reporting on the, on the, the camp. But can you fill folks in on, on Camp Canacook and, and all, um, and you have a personal connection to. Oh yeah. Canacook yeah. is in my hometown. I grew up in Branson slash Hollister, Missouri. Uh, Branson won't ca- claim Hollister cause we're like the white trash neighbor. Um, <laughs> but it's just cause we don't get as many tax dollars in our area code. Um, <laughs> because Branson is like very tourist heavy, like it's a yeah. pretty big tourist attraction. It's also home of Canacuck camps. Um, and you know, when I was growing and so I grew up around Canacuck, everybody, everybody worked at Canacuck. Everybody had like family that was on staff at Canacuck and Canacuck was a really expensive camp. So for many of us that couldn't afford to go, they just became camp counselors. Uh, my blog is dedicated to my sister who got like super fucked up by Canacuck because mm. she worked for their ministry for years. She worked for their white savior camp. I call is what I call it. It's called KAA and it's this like fully scholarship camp, but it's all black kids. And, um, and so like, you know, meanwhile, the white kids at like the regular camps are paying $4,000 a month to go, however much it is. I just know it's expensive. Um, anyway, all that to be said, the, the culture, we call it the canna culture was pervasive growing up. And what I mean is that there was definitely like an in and an out. Like if you were in the canna cook crowd that was like you were in like those were the cool christians you know and i know i talk about this in like one of my very first blogs of like my perception of like a canacuck godly woman and i just couldn't i i would never quite be them because they were supposed to be like ethereal and wear like baggy sports clothes and never wear makeup and that was supposed to be like the figure of beauty and i was like now i wore the shit out of some dream that moose and I really liked <laughs> clothes that fit, you know, like, and so um, anyway, Canacuck was everywhere. And I still to this day, I mean, I, I don't even know, maybe some people back home listen to these podcasts I record, maybe not, but I have friends who's like, they still work for Canacuck. Um, and so my family and I always kind of like, turn, not turned our nose up, but we felt snuffed by the Canaculture. Let's put it that way. Um, And then I saw my sister and just like how hard she tried to get the approval 
of the people at that camp. And then I had, I was part of a mission group in college um, and I had this Bible study leader and she graduated from the Canacuck Institute. I don't know. It's some like BS Bible studies certificate. Um, another probably just like, you know, uh, revenue generator. Um, but she and her husband both went to the Canacuck Institute and they were just like every brand of Christian I thought was like so bomb worthy. And I felt so suffocated in that group. And I thought, you know, this mission group that actually has a really great statement. I feel like I, I like cannot wait to get the F out of here. Um, and I write a lot about that experience in my book. Um, and so then I also grew up listening to Pete Newman he preached on Wednesday nights. People would go to see Pete speak. He was in and out of our schools, like going to lunches with the kids and like whatever, which sounds fucking creepy because it is like, and, but we didn't see anything of it because all the youth pastors in the area got passes to come have lunch with the high schoolers. Like it just wasn't, wasn't weird. Um, and yeah, and then fast forward where now he is in prison for multiple accounts of um, child molestation. And my peers, my friends were his students. And I know for a fact, many of them are still very traumatized by the situation. And now with everything coming out about it, it's just, you know, even messier than ever. Um, because many of them still don't feel comfortable talking about it because of all the NDAs and da da da. Even though the guy's in prison, um, yeah. so yeah, that's Canacuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, but it is pervasive because there's this um, there's this kind of trench mentality. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but it's like this mentality of like be on the defensive to protect the brand in a way. That's almost yes. not a fair way to put it because it's a whole. It, it, it pervades every fiber mm-hmm. of our being, of our thinking, of our feelings, of our mm-hmm. spiritual life, of our history. It's like, no, you have to protect. Be- oh, in, in Canacook's case, oh, well, if you say this and this becomes public, it's going to ruin all the great work that we're doing. You know, all mm-hmm. of the great ministry that we're it's doing. It's going to distract all- from. Yeah, distract from. Yeah, yeah so... Wow. So it was so yeah. ironic when I clicked at God first, other second, um, third. But in yeah. a way, that's, it's like a grooming thing. Like when you it read is. it in the context, it's a grooming yeah. thing. So for listeners like uh, God first, other second, I'm third. What that blog post is talking about is um, I had this experience in with my sexual trauma therapist um, where I realized that this idea of I'm third, putting myself third, which is a can of cup phrase. You wear it on necklaces, it's on bracelets, there are shirts, there's like literally an I'm third way on the Canacut campus, that's like a name of a street. Um, and like I said, I didn't even go to Canacut, but I knew this term. And that idea that you put others and God before yourself, what it does is it creates a whole lifestyle of self-negligence. And you get to a point where you don't even know what you want as an individual, But you're also taught that that doesn't really matter because what you want is sinful anyway, because that's the flesh, right? And all that matters is what God wants. So that's why you're putting God first, because it doesn't really matter what you want. And you just get to a point where you're like, "Ah, I don't know what I want. I definitely don't know how to communicate what I want. And I am putting people first in the most subtle of ways. In that blog post, I talk about how like, I wouldn't speak up for myself in sexual situations because I didn't want to like 
hurt the guy's feelings or like guys that I didn't want to go on second or third dates with, I would end up going on fifth, sixth, seventh dates with because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I was putting his ego above my like personal felt safety. Um, and I had to learn how to not do that anymore. So yeah, yeah, to your point, it's incredibly pervasive because I was 27 when I was reckoning with this. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that surprised me once I started getting to know, like w- once you get behind closed doors, behind the like presentational part of like, I, I shared this um, uh, on a recent uh, conversation about there, there's a, a certain kind of veneer of evangelism mm-hmm. that people like present. It's like, I'm good looking. My wife's gorgeous. I'm rich. I'm successful. My teeth are white. My kids are the captain of the soccer team and they could beat up your other kid, your kids mm-hmm. and they get straight A's. Therefore, we must be right now. Accept Jesus into your heart. <laughs> you know, that yeah. version of evangelism. But when I got behind closed doors and I started like going through life with some of these folks, this is a very specific thing. I was surprised that more teenagers in the church were getting pregnant, getting STDs. Then even when I was growing up in the 80s, I grew up in like, you know, we were all Jer- Jews and Italians in central yeah. Jersey. And, you know, we were the... Wait, where in know. Jersey are you from? So I, I, my family's all from Brooklyn, but I grew up in, in Freehold uh, or the Freehold area. We were on okay. Manalpin. Yeah, yeah. My, my boyfriend's from Matawan. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's like two, yeah. uh, three towns over. Yeah. Yeah, I always joke that I got my Italian. Unfortunately, he's from New Jersey. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> not not Florence. Um, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. but I mean, it's not to say none of our friends growing up in the '80s were getting pregnant or anything. But I was amazed at the pervasiveness of like problems, and yet here's the kids from you know Grace Baptist, you know, all pure and stuff, and all of them are getting the STDs. Us, we were like, you know, supposedly, um, what do you call it, promiscuous beyond measure. I, like, it was a much lower, it's not to say no, nobody was, but it was a much lower percentage. But I, so when I was reading about the, uh, the purity ring, so <laughs> can you explain to me what the purity ring is? And oh, um, purity sure. ring over like actual sexual, you know, sex education and, you know. Oh, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we didn't even have sexual education in my school. We had abstinence only education. Um, yeah. which was actually something I learned the Clinton administration. Um, I thought it was the Bush administration, but no, the Clinton administration did that. Um, so anyway, I did not get any sexual education and the purity ring, you know, this wasn't, the purity ring was not my parents idea, though. My parents definitely promoted and encouraged, uh, sex within a marriage, um, they did not, and they, and they definitely like upheld it as the best way. I think ultimately my parents just wanted us to feel safe and um, loved and respected by the person we were going to have sex with. And because they, you know, in their minds, they probably thought we were all going to get married at the same time they did, which was like 18 and 19. Um <laughs> So, but that only works if you get married very young. Otherwise, you can have sex with lots of people where you feel safe, loved, and respected that aren't going to be your husband. And if you do, or wife, and if you do wait for that, I don't know. That was a big part of my just deciding not to wait until I was married anymore, uh, or, or not to wait until I was married anymore, 
is because I was like, at what point does it just become weird that you are just completely siphoning off this entire part of your human experience um, in terms of age? But all of that to be said, the purity ring <laughs> was trendy. It was like a can of cup thing as well. Um, if you were, it was just, it was just performance essentially. Mm. Like if you are a Christian girl and if you are um, claiming to be Christ-like, well, the way to show it is by wearing a ring on your left finger until the day that you're married. And, and, and then on that day, you replace that ring with a ring from your husband to symbolize that your purity ring symbolizes that you belong to God and your father until the day that you get married. And then that symbolizes that you belong to your husband. And growing up, I did not have any qualms with that language. Once I got a little older... Belonging? belong to thing yeah, yeah that makes me feel very uncomfortable yeah. i can imagine if i went to savannah my oldest kid and like hey you belong to me savannah they, they'd be like yeah you and the horse you rode in on can both go fuck yourself yeah, <laughs> you know exactly, exactly but that was the language and like we all had them like every all of if you didn't have a purity ring if you weren't at least like trying to fake that you were saving yourself into oh, yeah. marriage well then you were just like blatantly a whore and the only girls who did that were the girls who we all knew were having sex and and like you know about them um right. so yeah and i wore that thing oh my god i still have it somewhere it is so bent up the diamond is missing i'm like i like to say that this is very indicative of like my purity efforts because it just looks gnarly um <laughs> But yeah, so I wore that ring like even after I I had sex, I still wore okay. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. So yeah. as I'm as I was reading more and more of your stuff, I was imagining uh, scenes that could be included in your series that I know yes. will get not only get made but will be very successful because so many people yeah. can relate. Uh, mm-hmm. But one of the one of the types of scenes, it could be a recurring one, actually, is, you know, going back home and encountering so and so that you went to church with, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's your friends, your, your you know, your bestie's mom that, oh, well, mm-hmm. I'm praying for MJ. I'm pretty praying for Maddie Joe, you know, yes. or it's your best friend that ended up like, you know, putting on the costume of like, I'm mm-hmm. a good Christian, you know, and mm-hmm. following all the rules and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. have you encountered folks like that when you go, going back home or? You know, how are those interactions if you do? Oh, dear. Um, Should we start drinking now? (laughs) Yeah, right. If I didn't have to go back to work after this, absolutely. Um, No, so it's interesting because um, my two best friends from college definitely did the whole like what you're supposed to do thing. They both married their first boyfriends. Um, They were both married by like 23 years old. Um, one of them is still very devout. She's actually a missionary in Turkey. And then the other one is like not super, super duper Christian, but still like they live in Little Rock and like they're conservative, conservative in culture, but like they're not hyper religious. But I haven't gotten a ton of like blatant pushback from the one who's a missionary in Turkey. Um, I would love to, at some point, sit down and chat with her about like, where do we not like, where have things gone awry between the two of us? Like, is there stuff that you secretly would like really like to confront with me, you know? Um, And then with my other best friend, we've like butted heads on some things more around like my sexual immorality. um, And I talk about that in the book. 
Um, but when I go home, I the the it's not so much blatant like oh I'm praying for you. I'm praying. You know, it's it's things like this. I'll give you two examples. I went home for my ten year reunion. And we were taking a group picture, a bunch of me and my classmates. And this guy that I like literally went to school since kindergarten together, um, grabbed my butt during the picture. And I turned around giving him a look of absolute fury. And he goes, Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you going to do? Me to me. And he goes, I know what you write on the internet, Maddie Joe. Okay. As if like, so his idea is that since I write about sex on the internet, that must mean I'm okay with him grabbing my body parts. That, and then later, later he comes up to me and he apologizes. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of nice. Until he says, I didn't realize you had a boyfriend. I would have never done that. Oh. Oh, Wait. so my body is, belongs to my boyfriend. And that's why you shouldn't have touched me. Not because you shouldn't have fucking touched me yeah. like that, right? So it's that kind of like insidious like belief that I see come out. Um, another time I have actually a Hebrew tattoo on my arm, Eshet Chayil, Proverbs 31. Eshet Chayil, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I got it because, um, you know, Proverbs 31 was just like drilled into my head and basically like used as this like propaganda of how to be the best version of a woman to be desirable by God and by a man. It was on every journal, every coffee mug, every fucking hoodie. Proverbs 31, be Proverbs 31 woman. Ah! And I was like, I hate this verse. I hate this verse. Then I learned about Eshet Chayil, which is woman of valor. And it's a prayer said to thank women in the Jewish tradition for everything they do. And I thought, that's a fun reclamation. So <laughs> I double checked with all my Jewish friends. And I was like, is this super awful of me as a shiksa? to get Hebrew <laughs> tattooed on my body. And they were like, no, I mean, anybody who cares about that cares about a lot of other things that Jews who don't care about that don't care about. Right. And I was like, okay, so that's not, so anyways, I have Hebrew on my body. When, when people in New York see the Hebrew on my body, they talk to me in Hebrew and hope that I'm single. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. They come up to me at the gym. Like I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long story. Um, yeah. And then, but when I, when people back home see my tattoo, they ask me about it and I say, oh, it's based on uh, Proverbs 31. Before I can continue my story, ooh, amen, amen. Yeah. And then I just stop. I just stop talking. I'm like, it's not the, worth, the rest of the breath I have. It's little things like that, you know? Um, but I also another very specific i am the regina george of the ozarks because uh, her hair is full of secrets so that <laughs> reference from mean girls because people back home when they have things that they feel like are is like salacious information they share it with me because they know there will be no judgment they know i am a safe space because i understand where they come from and i have an understand an understanding of like Christian evangelical context and culture, but I'm not going to judge them because I now live fully in the secular world, free from all of that. Right. So I know a lot. <laughs> I know a lot of what goes on back home. So it's this interesting like dichotomy of um, reactions. Yeah. So you've mentioned getting more politically engaged. We, we haven't talked about that yet, but I know in my experience, I had some very 
significant theological questions, if not conflicts. Yeah. Uh, you know, the first one that came up, the, the church that we went to for about a decade plus was a young earth creation church, six literal 24 hour days, 5,000 something years ago. And I remember kind of teasing out this conversation with, uh, well, the new pastor uh, when he mm. came and, and we talked long and hard about it. I'm like, listen, I know my people. Like my people at the foot of Mount Sinai, let's just grant you that God's voice boomed from Mount Sinai. And he said, you know, he got to the day part. I can guarantee mm. you not one of those two million plus or minus people said, I wonder if he means a literal 24-hour day. Yeah. So that's, that's – a, but so we had some fun conversations about theology. But when I started questioning politics, you know, whether it was in my kids' Christian school – or at the church, that then shit got real. Like mm-hmm. we were at a, um, we were at this. The kids had a, uh, like I said, they were going to uh, Trinity Classical Academy. They were it's Christian school, and they had these monthly um, community get-togethers. Uh, they'd often bring in uh, a special speaker, and it was often I noticed that there was this pattern of like one super hyper conservative after another. And then finally, they brought in this one um, speaker. She had grown up in Eastern Europe in, um, uh, you know, before the Berlin Wall was taken down, mm. you know, on that side of communism. And mm. she gave an hour-long talk on the Marxism, communism, socialism, and possibly even Islamic terrorism of Barack Hussein Obama. And I'm like, first of all, all those things don't go together. But I got up at the end and I'm like, what does this have to do with classical Christian education. That's all I said. And man, you, I, like we were physically in danger. The second that I questioned, like, mm. wait, well, what does this have to do with classical Christian education? I didn't even hint at like what my views about uh, Barack, Pre- President Obama were. It just mm. even questioning, like, no, 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 you, you're hinting at the fact that you don't hate him enough for us, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, sorry, long way around the barn of asking this question. Did you? Has this become an issue for you? Like. Uh, if you're even remotely unorthodox from a political uh, standpoint or social issues, ha- have you had to face a lot of uh, pushback on that? Yeah. So the thing is, is like I was never actively political uh, until the 2016 election because, you know, talking politics and religion without killing each other, not possible in my family. <laughs> my father is very conservative. Well, I would say he's like... Um, he still maintains some ideas in conservatism, but he's definitely not like a Trump supporter, right? He's not that version. This version of the GOP, not his party. Um, but he did vote for Bush. You know, like he's he was always going to vote for someone who isn't in favor of big government. Um, his views have changed some, but anyway. Uh, but my brother, on the other hand... <laughs> is a raging liberal um and it always caused massive blow-ups anytime my family started the conversation huge huge and uh like screaming like it was and so i was like i'm not interested doesn't affect me you know that was my whole thing um However, I will say this. I had to write a 16 to 20 page research paper for an English, like a a dual credit college course my senior year of high school um, on any topic that we wanted to research. It was an election year. It was 2018. So I was like, uh, yeah, all or 2018, um, 2008. 
Um, and so I was like, I'll do it on the election because then I can read. This is my first time voting. Like I can kill two birds with one stone. Right. And I went in fully thinking that I was going to vote for McCain. I just assumed I would. Everybody around me is conservative, like whatever. Um, and then I did all this research. And as I was researching, I was like, I feel like I align more with Obama mm. <laughs> in all of his policies. I was like, this makes way more sense to me than what McCain is presenting. Like, and I think that this is how we should do things, right? Like vote for the world you want to live in, not the one that you do. Um, and that's, so I, in the end I was like, oh, I'm, that's my like, uh, summary conclusion, going to vote for Obama. Right before I go in to vote for Obama, I've like decided this and my sister, she would be horrified if I was telling this story and I don't think she remembers this, but I'm, you know, I'm going to vote for Obama, whatever. Maddie, I really think that he's like, and she gives me all of these reasons why she thinks he's basically part of the Taliban (laughs) and she scares me out of voting for him. So in the end, I voted for John McCain. All right. So this is my experience with politics 2016. Uh, then I go through all of my deconstruction and I'm, I'm figuring out all of this uh, in my own life. Like, oh, actually, the evangelical church doesn't feel, doesn't care about true love or, or uncondition. No, I don't want to say true love, unconditional love, grace, like none of that. It's all just like a ploy for power and control, which makes sense since the inception of the organized Christian religion is the Catholic church was ha- which has always been about power and control, um, and money and, um, whatever. So I, so then when Trump came on the scene, I was furious because I was like, wait, 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 this used to just be like a little personal thing I was going through. Now this is national. And this is a, this is like permeating and perversing everything. And oh my God, I cannot have the people who I just spent the last three years of my life untangling myself from their systems and their cellular, um, uh, whatever, cellular belief system, cellular commentary on like everything, right? It's like, I always say the, the mental and emotional gymnastics it requires to deconstruct your faith. It's just like at every angle, you like try to gain some freedom. And then you've got like youth pastor Jiminy Cricket being like, but you're being a relativist. You're probably going to hell now, you know? And so it's so hard. You have to just like, it's faith whack-a-mole, you know? And I was like, I've just done all of this work. And now these people, they're going to elect this president, <laughs> yeah. all of the misogyny that I had like been uncovering and fighting. And then I just got, I just got angry and I just got fueled up. And then, um, I mean, to directly answer your question. Yeah. Basically I would just be pushed back on as like an angry woman. And why am I so upset? And I'm like, why am I so upset? <laughs> and like, they just couldn't see things the, the way that I did. And the more conversations I got into with people like that, because I, I do think that there's something to be said about sitting down and actually, I know you've mentioned this on your podcast, like actually having conversations versus like living on a screen um, and typing. But the more of those conversations I got into, I was like, this has to go so far back and so much undoing of like our just fundamental operations to make any true headway. Like, for example, when my uncle was like, well, we were talking about Planned Parenthood 
and my experience with Planned Parenthood and why I love them and support them so much. And he was like, well, if women want to be sexually active, they should have to pay for their health care. And I was like, okay, there's so much wrong with that. I like, okay, we, we're not going to see eye to eye. There's so much wrong with what you just said. And I'm not going to teach you why everything's wrong with what you just said, you know? So, um, yeah. So if that answers your question, (laughs) it does, it does. Yeah. And, and it is a quandary for so many people that grew up in the church or a part of a church and, you know, have, deep theological convictions Mm -hmm. that guide their, that should be a, you should be able to guide your spiritual life without so much ambivalence, you know? Um, so it, it is, uh, it is a tangled web. I'm curious where your spiritual life is now. What, like where your beliefs are now? Yeah. Um, so I, I actually have a series of blogs about this too, uh, starting with, the title of the first one is Hell Yes. Oh, fuck. And it's when I, <laughs> <laughs> when I came to terms with the fact that I'm not a Christian. Um, oh. And then I have two follow-up posts called Hell No, part, and, part one and two. And it's dissecting this concept of hell. Um, so, yeah, I would say through, through my experience, because basically how it worked for me is, um, you know, I... I, I say that my entire identity was um, dismantled thanks to my Jewish roommate and tender. Um, and basically, <laughs> basically what happened is um, I was having these experiences that were directly in conflict with what I had been told to be absolute truth. But it wasn't enough for me as a good evangelical, can't trust my own experiences, Um It wasn't enough for me to just have those experiences and walk away from my entire identity, even though I didn't know that's what I was actually doing. I needed to understand scripture better. And I needed to understand, like, why does this just not feel right for me? And so um, basically, I went out with this Jewish guy and I had this like equally yoked panic attack. And I was like, I can't date a Jewish guy. And my roommate was like, what's so bad about dating a Jewish guy? <laughs> I was like, yeah. well, cause we're not of the same faith background. And he was like, so that's important to you. And I was like, of course, because I can't date someone who thinks so differently than me. Like I wouldn't date a Mormon. And he was like, oh yeah, Mormons, they're, they're crazy. And I was, I could sense <laughs> that he was being sarcastic. And I was like, I mean, do you know what they believe, Andrew? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he like names off some things. I was like, yeah, that's fucking crazy. And he goes, yeah, no, I get it. Christians get miracles. Everyone else gets stuff they made up. <laughs> and I was like, I have a kid. Uh, uh, that's true. You know, like I suddenly was like, oh, oh, and then he sent me on like a reading path and he gave me all of these books to read. Um, he was actually very well read when it came to the New Testament. And so we would have, so I read like Zel- Zealot by Reza Aslan. I got into uh, Bert. I always get it wrong. Is it Bart Ehrman? Bart Ehrman's. Uh, Bart Ehrman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just went down a rabbit hole of textual criticism And then I was like, oh, my God, I don't think Jesus is who they told me he was. And that reality is going to change everything about my life, whether I want to or not. And on the one hand, I felt huge relief that I didn't have to live 
in accordance to all of this purity culture. I didn't have to believe my Jewish neighbors were going to hell. I didn't have to try hard to convert Muslims. I didn't have to only date Christian guys. Like all of a sudden I felt this like freedom. But on the other hand, I had no idea how to move forward without the Bible being this blueprint for life, right? And it took me probably another like five years until I went to church with like a very like affirming church. And they said, it was communion and they were like, and we just want you to know, we know at some churches, like they don't allow you to come up here and take this unless you call yourself a Christian. We're welcoming of anybody, da, da, da. And I was like, I still can't do it. <laughs> I'm not a Christian. I can't like, because I don't believe that Jesus is God incarnate. Um, I don't believe in original sin. Um, and those feel like really big hitters. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, um, and so that's why I can't, because I just like those two things alone are enough to be like, well, I don't like, there are a few things you sort of have to buy into and I, I don't really. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to really oversimplify and overly <laughs> distill stuff. But, um, my dad and I, as you can imagine, have had this to this day ongoing conversation uh, yeah. about, you know, Jesus, about why became yeah. a Christian. Um, and I, I, I was going to say, like, are you like the Asher Lev of your family? Do you know that uh, reference? No. Asher Lev. Anyway, he's this um, artist, this Jewish artist that like painted a famous like crucifix. Oh. I think it was. And oh my gosh, the the pushback he got from like the Jewish community. Anyway, I saw a play about it. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I almost thought, so there there was talk at a certain point about um, about doing this independent film about the Jew from Jersey who becomes a Christian. Uh, <laughs> a lot of stories there, but, um, <laughs> and there was funding for it, but the kicker was, well, when does the dad accept Jesus into his heart? I'm like, that's so uninteresting to me <laughs> yeah. you know, because it's about a father and a son and having this hard conversation. And, you know, so my dad, my dad, actually, he has a very nuanced view of Jesus. He thinks that Jesus was a prophet in the, in the. Uh, tradition of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi. Um, he also thinks that what, what we uh, Jews think of as a tzaddik, like the great rabbi of his generation, mm-hmm. or at least a great rabbi of his generation. And when it comes to the Messiah thing, he's like, he was a Messiah candidate. <laughs> so, <laughs> could so, have been. <laughs> could have been. Yeah, but he says, at, at first he said, but he's obviously a failed Messiah candidate because my father's still Jewish. He wears a yarmulke. He's, you know... Um, Later, when we revisited the conversation, he had read, I don't know if you're familiar with N.T. Wright and his history work on first century Israel or, you know, yeah. uh, Canaan or whatever. Um, but he, he had been reading Yoder and some some pretty heady stuff. And he yeah. came to the conclusion that failed Messiah candidate, but the failure wasn't his. It was a failure of the people of Israel of his generation. And I thought that's, yeah. a, that's probably a more nuanced view than almost every Christian, most most Christians, not every Christian, but mm-hmm. like that's a really nuanced view of the historical Jesus and the the impact that he had theologically on you know on Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we look at it historically, um, if we look at it historically, I think that someone like Constantine had a much bigger shaping effect on modern Christianity than Jesus did. If we're really a hundred percent. Ten thousand percent. I, you know, I do think like um, something in terms of like politics and tying Jesus into politics. I think a lot of progressive Christians want to say want to like 
pose Jesus as this like social justice warrior of his time. And that's true. In some of the gospels, he is very much that. In some of the gospels, he's kind of wackadoodle in times crazy. <laughs> and I think we miss that. I think it's like, yeah, but in this one, he talks a fuck ton about coming back before the end of this generation bringing the kingdom of God on earth. It reads more like revelation than it does like a social justice warrior, you know, but people don't read that Jesus. They, 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 Christians try to conflate Jesus, right? Like when you hear the birth story of Christmas, you get a bunch of details from like the three different gospels that even have the birth story because it's not in John. Um, And and so you do you do that with the Christians, and then I think progressive Christians do the like selective Jesus, which is okay because um, AJ Jacobs wrote this great book, highly recommend, um, called Oh my gosh, now I'm gonna blank on it. Uh, uh, know it all, know it all, and he spends a year following the Bible literally, and his basically his conclusion. Okay, I'm gonna ruin it for you. He is like there's this phrase called cafeteria Christian that people use in the Christian tradition to kind of poo-poo people who just pick and choose the Christianity they want to follow. In his research and his experience, everyone is a cafeteria Christian. They all sort of like zoom in on one thing and then extract from there. Um, and, And that's like every single Christian. And of course, that's understandable. The Bible is a big book. Like there's a lot to gravitate towards and push away from. Um, But anyways, so I think progressive Christians are sort of like guilty of that too. They leave out this kind of like in times holding a sign on the highway, Jesus, you know? And, um, and then also um, in in terms of Constantine, like what I say is that the, the very inception of organized Christianity in, in my opinion, in my research was an anti-Semitic movement. And, and I think Riza Aslan comes to the same conclusion at the end of Zealot. And so I just, these things that sort of keep popping out about Christians, like, oh, they're anti-Semitic, even though like there's a lot going on with the Palestine-Israel thing right now that would suggest non-Christians and progressives are anti-Semitic, you know, um, or, or is there this way that we can get back to like the Christianity that's really just following Jesus. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know y'all because the, when it was like very much created to be something that we could organizingly follow, if that's the word, um, it, it was done. So for power and oppression. So I don't know if you can ever get really back to like the, I think you can on like get to the heart of like pieces of Jesus and what is consistent but also you have to look at texts that are outside the Bible that are contemporaries of the Bible. You know, like I have this whole bit in my book about how I picture the uh, council of Nicaea went. And because that was just like evangelicals love to be like God breathed, God be- breathed, the scriptures, God breathed. I'm like, what about the book, uh, the, the Bible that the Catholics have? It has more books than ours. Which one's <laughs> God breathed, you know? And then, um, and then it's really just the, these are the books that they decided were in line with what they wanted to forward, which is Jesus as a Trinity. Because not everybody believed that Jesus was God. Not everybody believed that Jesus was fully human. They're the Gnostics, right? Like there were all these different beliefs, but they were like, what do we want him to be? Three and one, good to go. Let's call it for lunch. And then when they came back, they were like, <laughs> okay, 
<laughs> only books that support that perspective, you know? And so I'm just like, okay, well, we can't really know who he is. And instead of the faith being like, I'm going to call myself a Christian and whether I'm right or not, I don't, I don't know. But what I do know is that I'm going to heaven and everybody else is going to hell. Maybe the faith is, this is what I believe. I don't really know if it's true, but everybody else is allowed to believe what they want. But that's not what ev evangelism is. That's not what evangelicalism is. That the great commission of Christianity doesn't allow for you to just be like, laissez-faire, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, well, that's a whole other... <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> It's a lot, but yeah, I, I see what I see where you're coming from. And we've talked a lot about the colonization of, of the Christian sect of Judaism. Um, you know, that that's a whole other <laughs> series, let alone conversation. Yeah. Um, what's it like writing a book? So you, you've written a lot, but the, yeah. the process of writing a book must be very different. Yeah. I do want to say one thing before we move sure. on. Something that's been on my mind this whole conversation is you must have been like a hit in Christian churches because you were probably like, you know, the Jewish conversion mascot, right? Like I was. they were just all mascot like, is a yeah, great word for it. This is a this is a case for Christ personified, guys. Oh man. You know, I, like I've just been thinking that this whole time. <laughs> I have to confess that I embraced it, uh, especially early on about, you know, sharing my testimony because I, I recognized that it was a unique testimony, especially one where I wasn't just like a casual Jew. Like I wasn't Jew-ish as what's his name, uh, you know, referred to himself. I, yeah. I was like, I, we kept kosher. You know, we, we went to yeah. Shabbos. We like, we, like we were, we, we, we were observant, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's still, I'm still Jewish. I'm still, I've never felt more Jewish, by the way, uh, since yeah. you brought up the, the war. Um, mm. But, uh, but yeah, sharing that testimony about how I came to the Lord. One of the first times I, w I had to go before the church, and this church, Grace, uh, at the time, there were, I don't know, somewhere between uh, probably about 3,500 people going on any given weekend. So right. I went, yeah. shared the testimony before every service, and uh, it happened to be Passover, the, um, mm. the first and second night of Passover. And there's a question, fair kasha, the, the four questions, why is this night different from all other nights? It's because the Jew from Jersey is telling everybody yeah. how he became a Christian. That's why it's different. So yeah, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. it was, but like I said, yeah. they, the, the, the film that was never made was never made because they wanted it to end with Ronnie, you know, Chaim Rubin becoming a Christian. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, this is way more interesting if the father yeah. and the son still have to figure out how to work, how to live together, how to love each other, how to have, continue having conversations and figuring mm -hmm. this stuff out together. You know, that, that to yeah. me was much more interesting, but yeah. Um, and I'll, and I will also go back to the book conversation, but that is something that I've gotten a lot of feedback on my proof of concept pilot that I like, uh, submitted to a lot of different festivals. And we got, we got super close at, um, Tribeca film festival in their new work series. But anyway, um, one of the, they don't give feedback super often, but like the feedback that I did get was a lot of people were very unsatisfied with my father's, uh, role in it. They were like, it doesn't really make sense. I would, I'll, I'll send it to you. You can, you can watch I'd it. Love but to, yeah. like, uh, I, it doesn't really make sense. Like, seems like he's really supportive of her and like she really loves him. Wouldn't it make more sense if he was like shaming her? And I'm like, no, because what is worse than feeling loved by your, your pastor dad? but only feeling loved because he believes you're following a certain set of rules, but you're secretly not. But like, you know, he loves you, but you're afraid to lose that love. That's what's supposed to be happening here. But instead people, um, and, and then also like the belief, the, the display of 
hey, we can actually like love each other, even though we're different, but that conflict can still remain, you know, and that would be further on in the series. But yeah, I think people just really want a, a child parent uh, feud. And yeah. also, these people probably just really want the person in the end to get saved because that's a success yeah. story, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of really bad films have been made based on, yeah. well, they shared the gospel real clearly, you know? Yeah. He talked about yeah. Jesus and it's the greatest thing since Kane Mutiny, you know? Like, no, it's yeah. really not. Bad acting is still bad acting. Bad writing bad is still acting. bad writing. Um, uh, so in terms of writing a book, so, um, yeah, in terms I, of bad writing, no, I'm in just terms of bad writing. <laughs> no, that know. must be so different than writing. Like you're a really talented writer, but I've been, um, digesting a lot of your, it's, it's a, it's a, writing for one particular medium has to be very different than writing something long form. That that's what I'm, that's what I'm curious about. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. Uh, it's been a, a long, long journey. Um, and it's my first book. So, you know, my whole goal with this process was to learn how to write a book. So I think my next books will not be as arduous as this one for the reasons that this one was, because with this one, I was kind of like, yeah, I was really trying to figure out like, how do I get from this end to this end? What is the story arc? And, and then also, like, they always talk about, like, killing your darlings. Like, what do I take out? Like, and I tried just to, like, put it out there and then let my editor do the work of that. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's still quite long and it probably needs some cuts still. Um, because then you, you still have the process of um, getting published, which is a whole other thing. So, like, just full disclosure, we're saying winter, spring 2024, but... Um, I have recently decided to try to get a three book deal. (laughs) So I don't know if it'll be out spring, winter, spring, 2024. It might be longer, but sign up for my email list. You'll get updates. I just wrote a recent (laughs) blog post about that. Um, but because when I first started the, when I first started writing it, I was just doing it as like a COVID project because I always knew I was going to write a book eventually. I just didn't know when the time would be. And then it was like, oh, COVID seems like now's the time. And then I was just putting stuff on um, Facebook. And then from Facebook, an, a, a reader of my blog um, was an editor at a new publishing house, an indie publishing house. And she was like, would you be interested in getting published? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So that kind of put a fire under my butt to like get my proposal and whatnot together. And that made it like real, like, oh, I am writing a book now. But then through those negotiations with that publishing house, I ultimately decided not to go with them. And I, I talked to a bunch of other friends who are authors and whatnot. And, and there's a lot we don't have to get into the weeds about in terms of like the publishing biz and what is there and what money is there and what's worth it and what's not worth it. I ended up in the end being like, you know what, if I'm not going to make any money as a first time author anyway, I would rather just be a, the executive of all of this. So mm. I'm going to hire an editor. I'm going to hire a publicist. I'm going to hire my cover artist. I'm going to hire my designer. I'm going to find my beta readers. And that's what I did. And so it's been like three years and it might be until this fall (laughs) until you can actually like read it, but it is done. (laughs) Okay, great. Exciting stuff. So I I, I need to ask, we've touched on some of this already, but I want to ask you the TPNR question, which is what do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with 
have better conversations with, perhaps even nurture relationships with people across our differences. So people who think differently than we do, have different beliefs than we do, who get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? Oh, that's, that's a great question. I love when you ask that question. Um, I, okay. I do believe respectful discourse is possible, but you have to have two parties who are in favor of and on the same team in that regard. Like, hey, I'm going to present this side. You're going to present your side. Not that we're trying to change each other's minds, but this is why I believe what I do. And then deep breaths, sitting back, relaxing, and not taking it personally. Um, so I do believe that it's possible. I just think in this uh, particular climate where it is so war e and literal war e with the pa- Palestine Israel situation like you can't say if you say one thing off oh you're pro Palestine oh you're pro Israel which means you're not for Palestine there's like no nuance in anything uh, identity politics is at an all time high and um, so that is tough because it's like you will so easily be put in one category or another. So I think that's where just both parties, whoever it may be, understand those ground rules. Like we're not trying to change each other's minds. We're just here to offer some information. Also ask me questions. I'd love to answer them. You know, because like I've sat down and had conversations with like a priest and some nuns about Planned Parenthood, about sex. I've talked to a few priests about sex and I think they're great conversations. I love Mm. that I get to do that. Yeah. So yeah. with the Ivrit on your arm, uh, mm-hmm. your tattoo, have mm-hmm. you had any encounters since Octo- October 7th? Uh, any negative No, encounters? I haven't. Probably mostly because I've been wearing sleeves. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. It's getting a little chilly. In cold. Um, yeah. No, um, I haven't. Be- um, but, you know, my parents were at the Macy's parade and protesters stopped the parade and then ended up like going like marching all the way down to the New York public library and like putting red paint all over Steven Schwartzman's memorial. And like, maybe I'm just ignorant, but like, what does Steven Schwartzman or Steven Schwartzman? I think he was like the founder of the public library. Like, what does he have to do with this? You know, but maybe he does, maybe I'm ignorant and he does have something to do with it, but um, it's pretty scary here. Um, I work for a, um, an agency a childcare agency and they had to like release this um, message because one of their sitters was caught on tape and went viral uh, tearing down the missing posters. And like so many of the families that we serve in that agency are Jewish. Like it's New York, you know? And um, I have friends who are Israeli Jews. I have friends who are born and raised in New York Jews. I have friends who are Scandinavian Jews and they all are just like, and all of them like considered themselves um, um, liberal at one point, and now mm-hmm. are like, I don't, I definitely can't consider yeah, myself so- liberal. So it's it is. I feel like I'm in a very specific situation because, like, I don't know if you saw that um, uh, Instagram reel that was like after uh, 
is distressed, not knowing if they should be pro-Israel, pro-Palestine, because it's like all of these reasons of like why the liberal artistic types should be and are being pushed to be pro-Palestine. But it's like, I have Israeli friends. I have so many Israeli friends. Like the the um, very close friends of mine, their cousins are on the front lines right now. And so, no, I'm like, I don't know. It's not that, that easy for me. And also like, I don't, here's another thing, having an opinion about everything. I don't care what Beyonce thinks about the Israel-Palestine conflict. Like why do influ- influencers matter? That is the problem. We're getting a lot of commentary, not a lot of news. And I, yeah, I have lots of opinions. About it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a good point because there are a lot of folks weighing in who don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Yeah, you know, um, and the frameworks that are being applied. It's we've been talking about this in, in a few different versions of it, and and it's this. Um, this uh, inclination to oversimplify, distill in order to put people into this side or the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what? We have to be able to hold space for the fact that I'm getting updates from my cousins on a daily basis just to make sure right. that everybody's okay. You know, yeah, found I listened out... to that episode the other day. Oh, thank you. Yeah. 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 We did find out tragically that um, my cousin's nephew, her husband's nephew, was mm-hmm. in fact killed on October 7th. He was missing, oh. but we found out last week. Um, so so th- this is, this shit is real. Like, yeah. um, you know, and we can still, I can still hold space for like wanting my cousins to be okay. And, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that they grew up with Palestinian friends and neighbors and work with and teach and, mm-hmm. you know, that there's a pluralistic society, but at the same time, hating just about everything Netanyahu legislatively has done. Like yes. not being like, I, I, I'm not a fan of his government to the degree that I know it's, you know, like that, that I know about it. Like we can hold mm-hmm. space for all of this at the same time. We can yes. hold space and have a heart for Palestinian civilians whose homes have been destroyed and, and who, who've died um, we, mm-hmm. we, and still be in favor of having Jews having a safe place to live in that region because they don't have a safe place to live in Egypt. They, they don't know there's, if you look at the anyway, sorry, yeah, I'm going off on a tangent. Jordan, could, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, that talk about a whole other uh, conversation. So, yeah. um, let's see. Do you have any questions for me? <laughs> well, I feel like whatever questions I'm going to ask, it could go on like a total rabbit hole. Um, totally. I do. I I am curious. Um, and I'm sorry that I don't know this already based on like past listens. But um, what is like, did you do your own version of faith deconstruction? Like, what was that? Um, are you still consider yourself a Christian? Like, where are you at with that? Not to put people in boxes. I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. I do still consider myself a Christian because I, the whole, the Jesus that I encountered in New Testament mm. it really holds to, it's, it's the most co- consistent, coherent set of answers to basic existential theological questions that I had been mm. developing since I can remember sitting in Yom Kippur services and reading the, you know, uh, uh, reading the, I didn't speak Hebrew, uh, but uh, reading the English translation of um, Ecclesiastes, for example, and wondering, mm-hmm. well, what does this mean? Like, you know, ha- having certain questions about meaning and um, the G- the rabbi Jesus and, mm. and the, the first time that I saw it, I didn't even recognize that it was the Sermon on the Mount, but his Devar Torah, his explanation of Torah was the most profound explanation of Torah that I'd ever heard. Mm. Um, 
So I can't shake that, and I don't want to let uh, an upside-down, Bible-waving, freaking Donald goddamn Trump, and I mean mm-hmm. goddamn Trump, <laughs> take that away. Like, he, mm-hmm. he, he, doesn't, he doesn't get that. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and folks who are Constantine, Constantinian, uh, I, 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 let's call them something else. Like I had yeah. this conversation with Tim Alberta uh, last week. Like, yeah, I can't wait to listen. Who, mm-hmm. who, who gets to claim the word evangelical? That's a beautiful word, evangelical, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Who gets to claim that word? Why don't you name a freaking party after it? Why don't you name it the Trump mm-hmm. party of, in the Trump denomination of Christianity? Take that, but don't take mm-hmm. evangelical. You know, so anyway, all that to say, like, yeah, I, I, I'm more, I feel more Jewish than ever. In fact, I've been going to Chabad on, on Shabbos on Saturday mornings mm-hmm. uh, uh, to uh, for Torah service because I, I feel I've never felt more Jewish than ever, and I connect, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, just a side note, like going to a uh, a kiddish like a lunch mm-hmm. after the, the Torah service with my friends from Chabad. Uh, you know, we, in the, in the shul, we, we have, uh, we eat and we hang out with each, we break bread and the conversations, like the theological conversations, if you want to know what Matthew 23 actually looked like, the conversation, Jesus was yelling at whether it was the Pharisees or the Zealots or the Essenes or whoever he was like, this is just Jews having a conversation. We're not arguing. We're just having a conversation, you know? So that's, (laughs) that is so funny because oh my gosh my friend Miley's Israeli and I was like I was talking about something and I was like you know like the the story in the the Bible where Jesus is like flipping the tables because da, da, da. and I care and she was like I'm sorry there's a story in the New Testament where Jesus <laughs> is flipping Bibles that's the most Jewish or, or uh, flipping tables that's the most Jewish thing I've ever heard like <laughs> yeah everybody thinks this is a historic thing no that's just Tuesday what are you talking about yeah. <laughs> um all right so before I love before it. we wrap up is there anything I feel like there's so much more I could have asked you but is there yeah. any we're gonna uh, we're gonna get to the business part of it so people know mm-hmm. where to find you and God sex and rich people mm-hmm. and all that but before we get to the business part of it is there anything important I forgot to ask you I don't think so. I mean, there are a lot, I mean, there are lots of, you know, tangents we could have gone on in terms of like, you know, Planned Parenthood and healthcare and women's health and, you know, health, sexual education and all of that. There's a lot there, but maybe we just, you know, do another episode at some point. Um, Because I I do think there's a lot uh, that really just needs to be revised about healthcare in our country. And um, yeah, so there's so much more we could talk about. One little tidbit, maybe it's a teaser mm-hmm. for a future conversation, but I was so encouraged to learn. I didn't, I didn't even know this part about Planned Parenthood, but they, the, the counseling that they provided to you during mm-hmm. a really traumatic, uh, after a traumatic experience and a, and a difficult time in your life was so encouraging. A lot of folks yeah. think, oh no, they're the ones who just want to, you know, kill babies at any time. And, you know, like, no, dude, yeah. like, just stop talking. You're, you're not helping yourself. You're not, you're not helping. And by the way, that's not Planned Parenthood, you know? Yeah. Well, so I will say really quick, and I do know that we have to wrap up. Yeah, um, yeah, that's okay. But, um, but I know literal, like, friends of mine who have been on and off Broadway multiple times, like, have created entire careers or in their 40s, they still go to Planned Parenthood for their women's health because they know it is the one place they can go that regardless of their working situation, their insurance will always be accepted. Mm. So in periods where, like, you're on Medicaid, I've been on Medicaid, like, 
for a lot of my time in New York City. And it's very, very hard to get into doctor's appointments. You will wait months. And I would say New York has a way better Medicaid system than like other states. Um, and so that's what kept me going to Planned Parenthood for so long as I was like, I just know it's the one place I can always get an appointment, no questions asked. Um, and then, um, yeah, so their services, if you find yourself in acute need uh, for sexual trauma, services or, or something like that. So what I did is I called, I requested to, um, and it was like right after it happened, like the morning after, um, I called, I said, I need to be tested. And then they connected me with, I need to be tested because I've been raped. And then they connected me with a counselor. That counselor said, gave me all the information. We actually, like, if you do have something, it's not going to show up right away. We will set that appointment for you. But in the meantime, can you get to the ER in the next 24 to 48 hours? We'll set you up with a social worker and a doctor and you'll take care of everything from there. So I called out of work. I did that. They And then there is where I got all of my preventative medication, like preventative HIV medi medication, all of that. They set me up with um, HIV testing for like up to eight months follow-up. And they set me up with a sexual trauma therapist. I didn't get into sexual trauma therapy until like months later, but that's another story. Um, but, and they documented it all. And I just kept asking like, this is free. Are you sure this is free? Are, this is free. And they were like, yes, everything is covered. Everything is taken care of because Planned Parenthood partners with nonprofits, um, places like the CVTC in uh, New York City. And what they do is they have advocates and those are those social workers that meet with us. And they do like free, like those, those workers, some of them are unpaid. They're, they're volunteer advocates. And then they, and then they pair you with the doctors and like, they have all these services, but uh, Planned Parenthood connects you with them. So yes, Planned Parenthood is an amazing, amazing resource. That's great. Yeah. And by the way, I, I think it's Daniel. Is that the, the, um, yeah, not his real name, but yeah, that's what we call okay. him. In the, in the, yeah, <laughs> I hope yeah. I hope there's a Daniel character in your in your series, and and oh, yes. that character is just I love that character because it's so almost great. he's like so brilliant and so on point that it is indeed funny. Like yes. it's like oh, why did I think of that? You know, like yeah. that makes so much sense. Why aren't we all thinking of this? Um, yes. So before we go, how can folks follow you? Find more info about God, sex, and rich people, and all the great work that you're doing. Yeah. So, um, I, my, what I say is I live in New York, mostly in New York, but also mostly on Instagram. Um, <laughs> and so you can find me on Instagram. It's Maddie Joe Kowser. So M A T T I E J O C O W S E R T. Um, I am also on TikTok, but not super often cause that platform scares me. Uh, uh, and it's Maddie Joe cow squirt. So the words were, it's super inappropriate, but it's funny. Um, and then also most importantly, my email list, um, maddiejoekowzert.com, uh, forward slash or backslash. I don't know. I think it's forward slash God, sex and rich people. Um, the word and not an ampersand, but if you just go to my website, maddiejoekowzert.com, you can find my blog super easily. Um, subscribe. I will not bomb your inbox. I totally, I, I promise, but you can, you can be on my like list of updates about what's going on with the book. And as soon as it is on pre-sale, everyone will know, everyone yeah. will know. Cause this has been such a long journey and I'm just ready for people to read the book. Yeah. So, it's awesome. Yes. And I, that those links will be in the show notes, uh, for the okay, IG right. and your, and your website. 
Uh, we'll definitely make sure about that. I can't believe, like, I don't think we tackled head-on exvangelical, but in a way no, we've been we talking about exvangelical the whole time without really uh, <laughs> talking about it. Yeah. So yeah. that maybe that'll be for the next one. It's still going to be, uh, yeah. but you, you, I. To be fair, you, you have been talking about the life of an exvangelical, so yeah, um, it's been really great. Thank you so much for doing yeah. this. MJ. Thank you for having me. This has been so wonderful. Yeah, really fun. I hope it's not the last time we talk. And, you know, best wishes for all the exciting stuff. I, I'm, I'm envious. I have to admit, I'm a little envious. The whole New York theater thing, it's in my blood. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I wish I was there with you. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I'm not as much in theater anymore. I do mostly on-camera work. I, like, transitioned out of theater. Um, not that I, I would love to be in a theater piece, Um I just don't want to sing. Don't make me do musicals anymore. That's behind me. But I'd love to be in a play. So if there are any casting directors listening, check out my website. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> awesome. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button. Leave a review. Write that review. It's so helpful. Uh, wherever you get your podcasts, tell a friend about Talk of Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. We're really easy to recommend. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us, where you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's C-O-R-E-Y, S as in Sam, Nathan, at Corey S. Nathan. Now, go talk some politics and religion and sex and anything you want, really, but do it with gentleness and respect, and have a great week. Yeah.